Remember that time when Universal wanted to create their own dark universe with a bunch of monster movies? That worked out well, right? Problem is, one movie already did that and didn't need Tom Cruise. And truth be told, it's a much better movie too. So our job this week is going to be nice and easy when we tell you that the Monster Squad is not that bad. Welcome, welcome one and all to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A, grades in B, movies. And I am stoked because we have a fun one this week. A movie that initially I thought I hadn't seen, but then I'm watching, I'm like, this seems really familiar. It's one of those movies where I guess I have actually seen it. I just forgot that I had seen it. That just tells you how many movies I've seen. But that's okay. That's okay. Because we're talking about The Monster Squad. And here we're turning to the podcast is Peter from the Movie Duel Podcast. Pete, how you doing, man? I'm doing really well. Thank you, Jason. So when it came time to get you back on the show and you pitched this movie, what is it about this film? Well, this, this is just prime, you know, my childhood was was just, you know, aching to watch this film, really. Uh, it was incredibly up my street. It was, uh, you know, classic movie monsters, kids. It's just, it just brings back so many memories of watching this when I was, um, I must have been around eight, nine, ten sort of years old. And it just takes me back completely. And it's still as good now as it was then and that's the thing it kind of fits into almost that that genre of kid adventure films that we're going to get into a little bit later on uh but it fits in the pocket quite well and if you haven't seen this movie uh you should definitely go and watch it before you listen to the rest of this podcast because otherwise we're just going to ruin it for you so just be warned that there's gonna be spoilers coming out and part of those spoilers is that we're going to take this film the monster squad and trailerize it. When a group of legendary monsters come to town, there's only one thing to do. Play the Monster Mash. But these ghouls looking for a graveyard smash didn't come to party. They're here to destroy the world. And it's up to a bunch of teenagers to save the day. We are so screwed. Enter the Monster Squad. A ragtag bunch of goonies looking to deal with the stranger things happening in their town in this film that's not shot on Super 8. They're going to kick these baddies right in the wolf dork. Also, when was the last time you heard someone say dork this much? I feel old, just reading the script. The Monster Squad, rated PG-13 for punt to the gonads. (laughs) <laughs> brilliant I, I it was one of those things where i'm watching this and those are the moments that as they come up on the movie i'm like no wait i have seen this will this film the term wolf dork kind of <laughs> brings it back a little bit here uh mm. but let's get into who is in this film the movie stars andre gower robbie kiger stephen mocked duncan regeer tom noonan brent chalem Ryan Lambert, Ashley Bank, Michael Faustino, Jonathan Grise, and again, I apologize if I mess up any of these names, Mary Ellen Trainer, Leonardo Cimino, and Jason Hervey. However, there is an almost starting in this one because Liam Neeson was apparently <laughs> paid for a bit part that was never shot, and I'm just wondering how I get that job. Well, yeah. Wow. Okay. I've never... I've never ever picked that up and I've seen a lot of uh, read a lot of trivia and uh, seen quite a few behind the scenes and documentaries about this film and I've never heard that never heard that I just wonder if they, they heard that he was going to do Dracula Dead and Loving It and then paid him to go away. I'm just curious. <laughs> just curious here. Apparently also Dustin Diamond, who of course played Screech on Saved yeah. by the Bell, had a small role in this, but his scenes were apparently cut. And Seth Green apparently did a screen test for the role of Sean that Andre Gower got. Yes. Uh, but obviously we got Andre Gower. I I could see Seth Green in this movie too. It, it would have made sense. 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's only a few years removed from obviously his, his turn in, in the, the TV series of It, um, which is a very sort of similar concept, I suppose. And yeah, you could definitely see him in this role. Right. The film is directed by Fred Decker, who, of course, directed Night of the Creeps and Robocop 3. And it was written by Decker and Shane Black, the writer-director of Iron Man 3 and The Predator. So somehow we have an MCU tie to the Monster Squad, and I'm kind of here for it. And here's a name that we're going to remember. It was exec produced by Peter Hyams who was the director of The Relic. And when you when we were talking about this movie, you're like, there's two connections mm-hmm. to The Relic. Peter Himes is one. Please let our listeners know what the second one is. Uh, well, the second one is uh, Robert Lesser, who plays um, the father of um, uh, Eugene, who's the, the sort of youngest member of the of the Monster Squad, who uh, who quite sort of comically in the film um, tries to convince him there's not a monster in his in his uh, in his wardrobe. Uh, who played the mayor in uh, in the Relic, the cleavage obsessed mayor. <laughs> I love how you have to put the cleavage-obsessed mayor, and then you also have to question, well, how many mayors are cleavage-obsessed out there? And I'm sure the number is, as I say, probably fairly high. (laughs) Surprisingly and happily, this film did not get any nominations at either the Razzies or the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. However, at the Saturn Awards, it actually did pretty good. It was nominated for Best Costumes, Lost to the Princess Bride. It was nominated for Best Music, Lost to Predator. Andrew Goyer was nominated for Best Performance by a Younger Actor. He lost to Kirk Cameron in Like Father, Like Son. And Duncan Regeer was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He lost to Richard Dawson in The Running Man. And, I mean, I mean, Andre Gower okay. losing to Kirk Cameron. Okay, Kirk Cameron was kind of a big deal at the time. Uh, and Richard Dawson was just a ton of fun in The Running Man. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Like, you, you kind of have to hand it to him on that one. And I think the lack of screen time for Duncan Regeer in this probably didn't help his case. Quite possibly, but I think that sort of helps with any sort of horror movie. I think if they'd have thrown in too much more of, of the Dracula character in this film, it would have taken away from it, I think. It, it's, it just gets the the amount of screen time for Dracula right. And I think it, if we had, we had any more, it, it it would have veered away into a bit more. I think they'd have been tempted to, to do a bit more comedy and that would have ruined the film. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, anytime you play a Dracula-esque character, um, there's going to be that probably that inclination to fall into a bad Transylvanian accent uh, 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 and all of a sudden go full count. Um, But he didn't, and it's good. Also, at the 1988 Young Artist Awards, the film won for Best Young Actors Ensemble in in a TV show or motion picture, and I wholeheartedly agree with that one. And surprising that they did all this on just a $12 million budget. However... However, worldwide, it only made $3.7 million. When it was released on the August 14th, 1987 weekend, it debuted at number 12 with only $1.9 million. The highest grossing debut that weekend was Can't Buy Me Love. It brought in $4.75 million. No Way Out debuted at number four with four point two million, and Disorderlies debuted at number seven at <laughs> two point seven million. The number one film that week was the second week of Stakeout, uh, which came in with five and a half million. But you know, you, you take a look at the you know the the box office that weekend. You've got La Bamba in there, okay, no problem. You have the second week of Masters of the Universe. <laughs> you've got the lost boys still in there and that kind of falls into that 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 genre if you will you got summer school you've got back to the beach which you also have summer school and back to the beach so that tells you you know the time of year and also keep in mind too, you're releasing a monster film in the middle of august mm-hmm. it seems like a bad time of year to be putting out this kind of film yeah, I, mean, I don't know. I think you think sort of summer blockbusters, things like Jaws, obviously that led the 
led the way in that and and that's you know it, it's it's almost of that elk of sort of big scary sort of films that are, are, are not you know are sort of centered towards a, a slightly younger audience so it's it's not not massively beyond the realms of of doing well i think there's a lot of um uh, conjecture as to why it was maybe not so successful um you know marketing being one of them it was it was maybe mar- not marketed um the best the studio didn't quite put the uh, the full force behind the marketing for the film and uh, you know and there was i think maybe it's they didn't necessarily know who to market it to as well because you know it's it's quite a strong first the hor- some of the horror scenes in the film are quite strong um, and I mean, it's over here. It was it was released as a as a fifteen, which I think is the sort of equivalent of a, an R rating. I think across the pond. Well, when you take a look at it, and we we recently did an episode on Jason X, and mm. that film in the UK was released with a fifteen. So you're taking a look at at the Monster Squad, and you're taking a look at Jason X, and even though Jason X is one of the more tame. Friday the 13th episodes, you have a movie coming out that's supposedly geared towards kids, yet has the same kind of rating as, you know, Jason in space. Like it's, yeah, you know, exactly. I, and, and there is a lot to this film where, you know, if you have parents who are maybe leery of bringing their kids to a film that has a bit of language, there's a bit of language in this, you know, it's not straight PG kind of movie. No. Um, you know, it is PG 13. So <sighs> there, there, there's a lot to unpack out of, out of this rating. Here. Yeah. But the, the one rating that does matter for us is the critic score over at Metacritic. This film has a meta score of 61 and over at Rotten Tomatoes, the audience score is 77%. The tomatometer is 56%. Now, before you sit there and say, okay, you're doing a film with a 56% critic score, you're kind of playing on easy mode today. <laughs> let, let me put this into perspective here. Taking a look at some of the films that came out around that time that may kind of fit in that same boat. The Goonies has a tomatometer of 77% and an audience score of 91%. Stand by me has a a tomatometer of 92% and an audience score of 94%. And Lost Boys has a tomatometer of 77% with an audience score of 85. So on both of those meters, the Monster Squad, which I personally enjoyed, more so than some of these films, fared worse and all of a sudden the tomato is green so the movie can be seen. So when you take a look at those comparables, before we get into the breakdown here, is this film, even a 56% critic score and a 77% audience score, is it unfairly maligned? Absolutely. And I think that comes down to, you know, you, you can put the Goonies out there, you can put Stand By Me out there. And most people will know of that of those films or they will know those films but if you tell them talk to them about the monster squad most you know generally people are probably going to say never heard of it what the hell's that and i think that's massively unfair because this is although the goonies stand by me are probably better made films and better in that sense the monster squad is just so much more enjoyable it's just a fantastic fun ride that just hits all of your senses. I think I can agree with you when it comes to the Goonies. And this is going to be, I think, the comparable that we that we talk about a lot in this episode. When you take a look at the Goonies, the cast is, you could say, on equal footing, uh, especially in the case of Mary Ellen Trainer, because she's in both. Um, but you take a look at some of the set pieces for the Goonies and you are talking a much higher budget and a much bigger production and some bigger names behind it. So there's some money there. You know, they did all this on a $12 million budget. Mm. You know, that's, you know, it's still a good chunk of change, especially in the eighties, but it's not Goonies money. 
And yet I still think from a character perspective, for the most part, you had equal to or better to work with in some cases. And again, we're going to draw a bunch of comparables to the Goonies, I'm sure, during this episode. But if you like the Goonies, you're going to like the Monster Squad if you haven't seen it yet. Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget, I mean, this and this this film is an hour and 21 minutes long. This and this crams in so much and it does it without it feeling rushed. Um, I mean, the Goonies from memory off the top of my head, I think is, is getting close to two hours long. Um, Stand me probably the same as well. And this just, it just has it all. It has everything that the Goonies has and it does it in that time. And it doesn't look that much cheaper than, uh, or that much cheaply made than, uh, than the Goonies. Well, except for the toilet flushing black hole that gets popped into existence, but we'll, we'll get <laughs> well, we'll, maybe, yeah. we'll get to that one in a bit. But let's get to the breakdown here. Andre Gower, who plays Sean, the leader of the Monster Squad, how was he as the leader for you? I think really good. I think it's it's a shame, you know, that he didn't really do a great deal. Um, certainly not that I've seen after this, but you know. He, He's he's definitely the most believable of the of the young actors, um, and he is you know he is the lead of this film, and he handles it so well. You know, again, you know, comparing to the Goonies, he handles it as well as Sean Astin does. Um, you know, he's he's got quite a charming character. He's he's very much um, able to portray a leader of of these of these kids. He's he's just really strong and i think you see a lot of a lot of the the actors sort of come through when you see a lot of interviews with uh, andre gower um it, you know it comes across in his performance just how sort of how capable and and, and strong of a personality he is I, I think the good thing for andre gower in this is that sean isn't as burdened down with the weight of everything that Sean Astin's character in The Goonies is dealing with. Yes, his parents are going through, for lack of a better term, marital strife, of course. You know, the, it's you know, just straight out of the uh, Steven Spielberg playbook. Oh, very much so. Like, <laughs> let, let's, let's throw a little, like, trauma in there somewhere. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's throw out some weight on the back of the character. But it, it doesn't define... It feels in The Goonies that Sean Astin is having to drag the rest of the team to you know to the end you know to be able to complete the mission if you will whereas sean in in this doesn't have to to do that you know the team is there the team is working together you know they have a plan maybe a bad plan but it's a plan nevertheless (laughs) um and it's never he's never bringing us down with everything that he's dealing with at home and i think there was a lot of you know, these these characters in the Goonies were dealing with a lot. You know, foreclosure of houses, moving away. Like you know, it, everything seemed down in their life. Here, you know, you you have Sean. Yeah, his parents are going through some things, but it's not like they're taking it on him, and it's not like no. he's yelling at the parents to get their ish together. It's 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 a good performance without the emotional baggage thrown onto the character yeah absolutely yeah robbie kiger who plays patrick um i'm I'm gonna tie two (laughs) characters here uh because michael faustino uh who plays eugene as well and I'm, i'm not gonna lie like these two characters patrick and eugene kind of felt a little extraneous Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're there just to to provide moments, and I mean, definitely Eugene does because he's this sort of very quiet, sort of shy character who's just sort of there to hit a couple of beats with, um, you know, uh, just sort of for for comedic effect, really. Um, and and the Patrick character is as well, really. I suppose he's there to sort of tie in the the mini sort of subplot with the uh, with his sister and. Uh, people taking rather creepy photos of her from a treehouse. Yeah, it's a little weird that the, the camera in the treehouse that he goes to, <laughs> yeah, and he has to know where it's pointing. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that has to ask his sister, 
if she's a virgin. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. This is a Pornhub category waiting to happen, I think. But it's just one of those things where. Yeah. It, well, he's actually he's jumping uh, when they've got the photo as well, and the and Frankenstein's monsters has got hold of the photo, and they're all jumping to reach it. He's one of the ones jumping for it as well. Uh, please tell me he's trying to take the picture so no one has to look at it. Please, well, you'd like to hope so. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's just one of those things where, like, those two characters felt extraneous, almost like they needed extra bodies mm. in order to be able to do the mission, but they weren't really flushed out. And that's that's yeah. the that's one knock I'm going to give on this film is that you have characters that could have added more if you had the space, you know, give them an extra 10 minutes to the film. And I think you can flush them out a little bit more. Yeah. Well, I don't think, like I say, I don't think it necessarily, the runtime's pretty perfect for me. I think, I don't think it, um, it harms the film in any way. I think you could have had that and I don't think it would have, it would have knocked it anywhere, but um, I think it was, uh, it, it definitely doesn't miss it. Okay, so let's then talk about Brent Shalem, who played Horace, the much better version of Chunk. If we're doing, if we're still doing yeah. comparisons to <laughs> to the Goonies here, how was Brent Shalem for you? Again, really, you know, he's he's there mainly for comic effect, but I think it's he's got such a great arc in the film. Obviously, he, by the end of the film, he. Uh, you know, well, he, at the start of the film, he's he's obviously being bullied. There's a, a very um, icky use of the other F word in this film, which is in 2023, is is incredibly uh, out of place. But you know, he's he's browbeaten throughout the film. Every, you know, he's, his nickname nickname is Fat Kid. Even his friends call him Fat Kid. Uh, but you know, as the film goes through, you know, he's got the immortal line in this film as well, which is uh, Wolfman's got nards, <laughs> which is just fantastic. Not, you know, that's, it's obviously a, uh, a, a saying from, from, from your sort of neck of the woods. It's not some nards is not something that I'm familiar with, but you know exactly what he means. And, uh, and then by the end of the film, you know, he, he comes, he becomes one of the heroes and, uh, uh, you know, plowing down the, uh, the, the Gilman, as he's called in this film, uh, in uh, a hail of shotgun shells. And announcing that his name is Horace. Yeah, he, he does have that triumphant moment. And, yeah. like, I'll, I'll be honest, when I'm watching The Goonies, like, if Chunk's on, I'm reaching for the mute button. Like, it's after a while, his voice started to, to annoy me. Here, Horace is, is good. Right. He has a complete arc. He has redemption. He has, you know, he he gets to basically be the man, you know, in front of the bully while he while the bully is cowering, you know, in the in the store. Like, it, it's great for those moments. But I'm, I'm glad you brought up some of the language usage in this film. Mm-hmm. Look, look, I'm not going to sit here and cancel the Monster Squad because, you know, they use some words that, you know, in 2023 are not exactly LGBTQ plus friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, we recognize that the film is of its time and that yeah. time was way less sensitive to, yeah. to everyone. Just, just go back and watch a police Academy film and you, you'll see what I mean. Right. <laughs> but I think it's one of those things where if you put yourself in the mindset that this is a film from the eighties and mm-hmm. this is how unfortunately a lot of characters in media properties talked like fictional characters right um it's of its time so Mm -hmm. you know i don't agree with you know if this movie was remade today with the same script no no No. but back in the 80s that's just what it was for exactly how wrong that it was in hindsight um but it's not, it's it's not worth canceling the film. Just just put yourself. Just remember, it was the eighties. Yeah. Oh god. Yeah. Yeah. It's well. I don't think it's. You know. I think there's there's a couple of things that you can throw at this film. I think there's you know um, there's a case of quote unquote uh, slut shaming in this film as well, which with um, Patrick's sister that you can sort of throw at it. And I know the filmmakers have, have sort of brought that up in recent years, but. You know, I don't 
it, it, like you say, it's just of its time. It's just of its time, and you've got to see it. You've got to watch any film um, like that, uh, like this. You know, it, with that in in mind, it's just not. Um, there's no point in this film that you think that it's overly. Um, what's the word? You know, overly overly egregious about those those sorts of things. You know, it's not being setting out to be to be completely nasty about it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing too is, if you want to put it into perspective, you know, these are high school kids. And mm. high school kids are going to use that language on the playground, yeah. right? Like that, that's, it's going to happen. You know, I'm mm. sure everyone in the history of ever, if they went back and listened to how they actually talked back in their high school days, they'd be sitting there going, mm, <laughs> so glad there weren't cameras back then. But yeah. <laughs> regardless of, you know, I, I don't think it pulls away from the fun of the film. No. Ryan Lambert. Who played Rudy, the older, cooler kid, because you know he was cool because he had sunglasses yeah. and a leather jacket. Mm-hmm. How was he? Yeah, great. Well, it, it's very archetypal, sort of this. Well, he is and he isn't. I think he's very archetypal in his look. He looks like you say the sunglasses, the leather jacket. You know, he's not quite got the motorcycle. He's got the sort of chopper. Um, but he's, you know, he looks like the archetypal sort of bad boy of the of the eighties, but I don't think they push it too far. I don't think he's too, um, you know, he's, he, he almost, although he's got a lot more confidence than maybe the rest of the monster squad, he still comes across as a little bit, um, a little bit lame in some ways, you know, he's still a little bit of a geek. Um, you know, he knows all the answers near enough, all the questions he's got to answer to get into the club. So he knows about this stuff. Um, and he's, you know, he's basically just a, a massively horny teenager who's got a reputation. Um, but, you know, he's got some of the best moments in the film as well. I think the thing I like about him is that, yes, it's kind of a trope, you know, <laughs> got the leather jacket, got the sunglasses, probably smokes more than likely um, yeah. and, and comes through in a pinch. But he's not an asshole to mm-hmm. to the monster squad. He's... He's one of them. He's one of them that just got a little bit older, right? Yeah. You know, and, and you do see some of these, you know, reunion of, of younger, fun kid groups kind of thing where they get back together and someone who was a complete dork back in the day all of a sudden got cool, but he's still one of them at heart. This feels like Rudy, right? He, Rudy knows where he came from. Rudy knows these kids and knows mm-hmm. that they like the same things he does. So, you know, he stands up for Horace. He stands up against the bullies, even mm-hmm. though when you look at Rudy, it's kind of punching down at that point, but yeah. it's still using the cool to, mm-hmm. to right the wrong. And that I think is different than a lot of the films that were out there at the time. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's, yeah, he's not just, you know, he's not just, um, you say, he's not just an arse, he's not an arsehole, he's not an arsehole at all. And it just, it's a massive plus point for this film. And he gets some of the better lines in this film as well. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Ashley Bank who played young Phoebe. Uh, this was actually her first film, but she had had TV appearances on like Family Ties and Cagney and Lacey prior to this. Um, I'm so happy that I don't have to sit here and, you know, remind people that we try not to pick on kids' performances because I actually think Ashley Bank was phenomenal in this. Mm-hmm. Phoebe was so much fun and had, you, you said Rudy had some of the best lines. I think Phoebe had some of the best <laughs> lines in this. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, everything would point to this being a really annoying performance and it should by absolute rights be a very, really annoying performance, but it's not, it's just right. It's, it's, it's right on the button. Um, you believe the relationship that she has with, uh, um, Tom Noonan's Frankenstein, uh, Frankenstein's monster. I'm falling into the trope there. Um, (laughs) but you know, you absolutely believe it. And she's, you know, and she's the, you know, one of the saviors in the end, you know, she does her part at the very end of the film and was genuinely terrified by Dracula as well. As mm. I understand that. Well, that, that was fun. Cause you know, when you when we're doing the research here, I'm taking a look at IMDb and I guess there was a story that she did not like the fangs that, that Duncan Regeer had to wear as well, she didn't know <laughs> she yeah. didn't know he was going to be wearing them. so yeah so when, when they they lift her up to to head-to-head height with him and mm. he shows the fangs that's like the genuine reaction like oh crap right <laughs> you know so a scare the crap out of a kid for a performance but b great reaction from the kid in yeah. the performance so but yeah I, I think ashley bank did a phenomenal job as phoebe and the part was well written for her and i did i liked the dynamic between her and andre gower like it was a good sibling dynamic, very mm. realistic. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, anybody who's got an older brother or an older sister or a younger brother or a younger sister, they they know that they know that relationship, and they, it's something that's going to be very familiar to 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 most sort of siblings. Um, and yeah, absolutely, great performances from both of them. Yeah, I think. You know, the fact that there's no girls written on the door to the clubhouse you know, and she still comes in anyways, right? So that that's exactly what the younger sister would do. Well, they can't let her in because it's prescription, she says. <laughs> oh, man. Again, this is such a fun script. It really is. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Mock, who played Dell, Sean's dad. Yeah. It could have been a trope. He could have been the hard-ass cop dad kind of thing. But <laughs> but No. He's, he's not like at no point is he, you know, taking out his frustrations with his job and his wife on Sean. You know, there's yeah. the moment where he comes back home with with takeout food and they're sitting on the on the roof and, you know, through mm-hmm. binoculars and a radio watching the drive in film. Like <laughs> it, he was a good family dad. Yeah, definitely. And I think he's, you know, again, it's it's believable. You you, you, you totally believe that performance and. You know, although uh, you know it doesn't go over the top with that sort of the melodrama aspects of the of the script and that relationship between him and his wife, it's it's there and it's played out, and you you know you see that in his performance, and and you know, and he's such a caring father about you know, although he's not you know 
talking about it directly with his son. You know, he's 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 making sure. You know, he knows it's an, it's important to keep a, a good relationship with his children, despite the fact that he's you know having marital problems, and that comes across without it being right in your face. Mm. Yeah, they they weren't didactic about it, and the thing is, no. the story's not about the marital problems. The story no. the story is about the kids, right? Mm-hmm. So they did enough in order to be able to set up the, you know, the, the, the family, you know, bond moment kind of thing, but they didn't let it get in the way of the story. Kind of like how it felt like the, you know, the, the back problems for, for Sean Astin's character kind of got in the way of the Goonies here. Mm. It was just, it was there for resolution and was at the perfect level. Although I will say it felt like a great underuse of a perfectly good Mary Ellen trainer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, this this isn't doesn't feel too far out of her wheelhouse, really. Um, but she's always, you know, in anything that she's in, she's she's always really solid. Um, she doesn't really have a great deal to do in this film um, to provide sort of, you know, a few uh, a few bits of um, you know pointing things in the right direction and stuff like that with the. Um, Van Helsing's uh, diary and and stuff like that. Um, so she's you know aside from that sort of marital problem uh, subplot, she's she's sort of pointing the way really. There was one actor in this where as soon as they were on screen, I had that holy crap, it's that guy moment. It's Jason Hervey who played EJ, and if you ever watched The Wonder Years. Yes, that's yeah. Fred Savage's brother in the show. <laughs> you know, not much for him in there except for to be the bully. Um, yeah. But I think he did it well enough. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's, he's very, again, you know, a little bit like Rudy. He's he's, he's quite archetypal, you know. Um, he's 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 there to to be an antagonist to the Monster Squad at a, a lower level and, um, and, and to, you know, bring out the, uh, uh, you know, he's there for the, He's sort of, you know, comeuppance at the end where he's 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 shown up to be the the coward that he is uh, against Horace, who's uh, who's standing up for for himself really. Leonardo Cimino, who played the quote unquote scary German guy in the mm-hmm. house, well, uh, that's that's what he's he's credited as, I believe. Isn't he? He's not. He doesn't have a name. Oh <laughs> he's wow, scary German guy. You know, I, I know we, we've been mentioning the Goonies a lot in this, but he feels like a character that would have come more out of the Burbs, you know, that movie with mm-hmm. Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's a classic sort of Boo, Boo Radley style character, really. You know, he's he's made out to be this this sort of um, figure of fear within the in the neighborhood. And, you know, uh, he's, he's built to be a potential antagonist, uh, but within, you know, seconds of, of introducing him, uh, he's he's you know warning them about running out of pie, and you know he becomes this sort of largely sort of comical role um, throughout the film. Um, but then he also provides quite a a poignant moment as well, you know, with the uh, the Holocaust connection and, and talking about uh, real monsters. Mm. And you know, again, drawing character comparisons here. If you think about, you know, the snow shoveling old guy from Home Alone. You know, the the one they all thought was a murderer and was shoveling bodies, you know, chopping yes. the bodies up, and then shoveling them out on his driveway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's that kind of character, and yeah, yeah. it's again a bit of an eighties trope, um, <laughs> but I think played well enough. Yeah. Can we before we get to the the monsters in this here? Yeah. There's someone we need to punt off the island. Please, please tell me. To, please tell me you're going to mention Stan Shaw. I was about to say Stan Shaw, who played <laughs> Detective Sapir, <laughs> Dell's partner. How can we ship him off the island in this one? Oh, he's just, it's just for the part that it is. It's just such a. He's got to be quite possibly the most sarcastic person in the film ever. He's just fantastic. And for the what, I think he's two, maybe three scenes in this film. He uh, he, he almost steals every scene that he's in, I think. It, it was just annoying. 
Like, what? No, no, oh. no, 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 no. Honestly, like, like I'm watching this and just the like, especially when they're you know when they're running to the car <laughs> to to go after 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 the dad gets the call that you know I'm going to kill your children kind of thing, and the dude's cracking jokes left and right, like. Mark Frazier from Samurai Cop did a better job of playing like the you know the detective <laughs> cop than this guy did, and it, I don't know. It, oh, it just no. it just got to me, and I don't know why. I'm gonna massively disagree with you, Jason. I'm afraid. I loved it. I thought it was incredibly funny. I think maybe that's because I have a very sarcastic sense of humor. So maybe that I just I'm very uh, akin to his uh, his his thought processes. Maybe. I think the biggest problem for me with him is that he felt totally different from the, the, the entirety of, of everyone else in the film, right? This movie is not played for gags and jokes, right? It, again, very much like the Goonies, they're on what's to them a serious mission. And while there's bickering and dork talk and wolf bands got nads and whatnot, like there's those moments, but they don't feel like quippy moments. Whereas detective Sapper is constantly making jokes and it feels almost shoehorned into the script because someone's got to be funny in the damn thing. But then I think he also had, it also adds that sense of sort of realism to the film because if you were a detective uh, in a in a police uh, police force and there was talk of mummies going missing and werewolves, you know, th- th- there's going to be certain people that react that way to those kind of things, you know, and he, you know, his his perception does change once he he realizes, you know, there's 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 obviously um, the, the sort of chase down back to the um, uh, to the main sort of household, and he, he, his perception does change that a little bit. But you know, he's he's reacting to a very unreal circumstance in a very sarcastic way. I think the the part that got me, and, and again, it's this moment where they're racing to the car. And, you know, after he got the phone call from the wolf man before he changed kind of thing, you have to assume that at some point, you know, Dell has said, like, they threatened my family to his partner, which is which would justify why they're going to ra- you know, race to wherever they have to go to. Right. At that point, the partner should not be cracking like maniacal laughter sarcasm at that point that that that's the part that that felt before i could agree with you it's that okay. one scene that kind of stands out okay i always thought that came a bit earlier in the film where he's laughing but i could be wrong oh oh, oh trust me he was the thing is he was justifiably <laughs> laughing and being sarcastic beforehand maybe it's just that one scene that really it, it felt almost unnecessary because like if your partner's that panicked um mm. you might want to not you know, just not okay. <laughs> <laughs> again, maybe just me, uh, Jonathan Grice, who was the human form of the wolf man. Um, again, I really liked him in this. Yeah. I think he, he plays, you know, I think I can think of a, a good sort of handful of performances of his where he plays somebody who's a little bit sort of out there and maybe, uh, you know, not got all his, uh, all his, uh, you know, he's not playing with a full deck kind of character, or a bit desperate, or a bit, um, you know, uh, on the, um, what's the word? You know, not, just not, not playing with a full deck, really. Um, he, he, he's, and he's really, you know, yeah, he's, he's, he plays this desperate man as he's, as he's, uh, credited in this film, um, really well you know you again very believable you believe that he's uh he's he's wanting to escape this this sort of curse that uh that uh, befouls him and uh and yeah it's a really decent performance from him on the flip side you've got tom noonan as frankenstein's monster yes <laughs> remember frankenstein is not the monster frankenstein's mm. the doctor um yeah. <laughs> how was he for you i have thoughts but how was he uh, I think he's pretty good. Um, I think Tom Noonan's got such a unique look to him anyway. 
um, without even being, you know, dressed up as Frankenstein's monster. Um, you could have done a little bit less um, makeup on him, and I think he would yeah. have, look, have looked um, quite unique. Um, but I think he, he pulls off the sympathetic sort of performance. I think it is a little, maybe a little bit too much like uh, Sloth from The Goonies. We're going to go there again. Um, but... You know, there's there's certain parts in the performance that would work really well. You know, um, the relationship with the Phoebe character is quite sweet. Um, then you know, at the end when he's got this very sort of cathartic look on his face before he gets sucked into the um, into the Van Helsing void, um, uh, that that works really well. Um, but I think it was maybe just ever so slightly played for laughs too much i'm glad you pointed out the sloth thing because again you're going to get those comparables and yes sloth love chunk and and frankenstein's monster love phoebe but there are parts where yes i completely agree uh tom noonan was a great monster as far as look goes, as far as mannerisms go. And there was the scene where he's looking at the the Frankenstein mask. Sorry, Frankenstein's monster mask. I did it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and he just looks at everyone else and goes, scary. And I'm just like, okay, I, I get it now. It's good. Mm-hmm. There were times when it felt a little much, but for the most part, Tom Noon, I think, did a pretty good job. But then we get to Duncan Regeer, who played Dracula. And... Man, did this guy eat up the scenery. Wow. I mean, despite the fact that he's got probably one of the the hokiest Dracula costumes, you know, it's very much, uh, very stereotypical Dracula sort of cape and uh, just general, the general look of him. But he pulls off being sinister so, so well. And he's, you know... There's, there's parts of the script, there's parts of the, you know, the, the, the sort of hammy situations within the film um, and even some sort of Arnie-style one-liners as well. But he pulls it off so, so well. You know, he's, he's not pushing the limits too much. You know, it, it keeps it within this reasonably family-friendly horror. Um, but doesn't go it doesn't go too far in being too scary but it also doesn't the performance doesn't get veer too much into being um you know a a parody at all Mm -hmm. like it's definitely dracula there's no question about Mm -hmm. that and i know there was a whole big thing with universal that they couldn't necessarily use all the, the 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 exact monster names, so they couldn't say it was the creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. It was just a dude who happened to look have a few gills and came out of the water. But mm-hmm. I think the best thing with 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 Duncan Regeer in this is that most of his darker vampiric scenes were mostly done with a lot of smart camera cinematography. Like there's the scene where he goes to yeah. turn the, the the three girls that are you know stuck in the closet and yeah. it's it's just their reaction and we don't go to see like the really bad blood sucking kind of thing like it's mm-hmm. it's all done in inference and and you you have you, you you do the picture you're making yourself at that point and i mm-hmm. think that's smart and the other thing too with duncan regeer we've made this comparison on the show before with previous movies like the stallone judge dread film um in that when it comes to the villains you have stage villains like Armando Sante in Judge Dredd that are very, you know, very loud and very verbose. And, you know, you don't need, you know, the speakers in the cinema. Uh, he's projecting everything to the back row himself, where yeah. you also have a screen villain as opposed to a stage villain where things are subtle and they're played for the camera, knowing that the camera is going to convey the emotion without having to be over the top. And I think Duncan Regeer nailed a, a screen version of of Dracula. Like, mm-hmm. it's not over the top, like you said. It's not tropey. It's all done in subtleness and and allowing the viewer to paint the picture themselves. And I think that was a smart yeah. call. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 pay, it's, pay, 
it's paying homage to Dracula's of past, but not not so much in your face as well. It's 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 doing it. He's 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 very much putting his own spin on on the different sort of iterations of Dracula throughout the years as well. And I mean, you know, at the end of the day, he's got his own car as well. Mm. Oh, that car is just fantastic. That car is great. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you could have taken most of the scenes with Duncan Regeer in them and drop the chroma entirely and put it in black and white. And it would have felt like one of those classic vampire Dracula films from like the forties and fifties. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things I think that hurts this film, at least as far as the critic score goes, not, not in the actual enjoyment of the film because the film is freaking enjoyable, but when it comes to the critics is that it has a bit of that been there, done that kind of feel to it right you know yes goonies did it and goonies was big doing it and it's not like one of those movies that or at least one of those things where you have movies that came out around the same time like or even in the Mm. same year you know this isn't a an armageddon deep impact moment this isn't a, a volcano dante's peak moment you know like goonies has been out there then this comes out and you know did it hurt in your opinion at least from pers- you know from the reception from the the box office and reception from the critics that goonies was already there and 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 did this dance possibly possibly but i always remember i'm pretty sure i saw this film before i saw the goonies um and i think it's just it you know, to me, it's it's a very important film in my horror background because I'm a big horror fan, really big horror fan. Started from a very young age, but you you pick up the you know you, you pick up from various different things, whether it's it's cartoons uh, or just you know just being in the zeitgeist, you know, Dracula, werewolves, uh, Frankenstein's monster. Um, Creature from Black Goon, Mummies, things like that. You pick them up just from the general sort of zeitgeist or from things like Scooby-Doo, Ghostbusters, you know, they're thinking sort of the cartoons and things like that. So you pick them up. But, you know, for me at that age, you don't, you've never necessarily seen them on film. And I think this is a very important film. Anybody who sort of might sort of question about what's a good introduction to horror for somebody of a maybe sort of, you know, early teens. And this sort of stands out as a really good introduction to classic horror, which, you know, Goonies is is a classic adventure or an introduction to classic adventure, whereas this is a, an introduction to classic horror. And it might use those tropes uh, that, you know, uh, the that the Goonies sort of treaded before, but you know I don't think that this you know I don't think it really hurts this film that it, that the Goonies was released before it because it it has its own it's had it has its own charm and it has its own purpose um, and you know it you can. <laughs> Yeah, it has its own purpose for definite. It almost feels like a gateway film, right? Mm, like this, definitely. this is your first taste, right? Um, are you interested in science fiction? Well, maybe you should try uh, this film. You know, if you're interested in space opera, go watch a Star Wars film. It's a gateway drug into everything else, right? You you want young kids on adventures? Goonies is your gateway. One of the other things too is that. More often than not, when we watch some of these older films, you sit there and go, oh, that'd be a that'd be a great thing to do a remake now and do that. But I'm going to sit there and for I think for once say, I don't want this film remade into any other format. I want this film to stand out on its own and not because I think if you did it now hmm. and took that film and redid it for whether it be the theaters or streaming services or whatever, you're unfortunately going to fall into the same trap where this probably got a lot of that, oh, hey, Goonies with monsters, right? Mm-hmm. Here, it's going to be like, oh, hey, watered down Stranger Things. And I yeah. don't think there's space at this point 
for the Monster Squad to be remade or redone because you still have properties out there that are doing it. And I think that also would take away from the earnestness of this because if you did it now... You know, the push would be, well, let's make Dracula, like, really bloodthirsty. And let's make the, mm-hmm. the Frankenstein's monster really, you know, like, look scary and all that. And and I think there's, like, I would be so happy if my kids watched this <laughs> film, right? It, yeah. It's, it's fine for kids. It's okay to let this film stand yeah. on its own. Well, it's, it's, it's almost like a history lesson. It's a history in horror. You know, it goes through, it, it, it. It tells you about, you know, the vast majority of the monsters anyway. It tells you about the, you know, the the folklore of them, of the of, of vampires, of Frankenstein's monster, you know, werewolves. It, it goes through those things and it's, it's very much homage to the, you know, the, the universal era of horror. Um, and I don't think, you know, setting, if you had a, if you made a remake now, of something that's you know what 70 70 years old or and probably older um then it, it wouldn't hit the mark quite so much i think you know if you were going to make something of this ilk now it would need to be based around things like your 80s horror films you know your freddy's your jason's and things like that yeah. i don't know if you could make that film but you know that's it, it needs to go you know it needs to it would need to pay homage to a different era in horror. Well, if Universal ever tries to revamp that dark universe, um, you have to then get to the Monster Squad as your Avengers of that tentpole of that franchise. <laughs> has to happen now. Has to happen. All right, Pete, before we go, it is time to name your MVP of the Monster Squad. And at this point, I'm going to sit there and say that the M and MVP has to stand for Monster now. Okay, well, it, it's it's got to be uh, Duncan Regeer as as Dracula, for definite. I Absolutely, but yeah, I mean, I, I do like the Wolfman. The Wolfman looks pretty cool, and there's you know a very uh, sort of dumbed down transformation scene of the of the Wolfman, and the effects in this film are absolutely fantastic. It's pure uh, Stan Winston. Uh, it's got Stan Winston's mark all over it, but just. On pure performance, uh, the Dracula performance is just fantastic. There was a list of, you know, great, great uh, villains in film. And, of course, you know, Mm -hmm. the character of Dracula was listed. And I can't remember uh, which publication put this out, but they actually specifically pointed out Duncan Regeer's performance in this as one of the the better Draculas to hit the silver screen. Um, And Duncan Regeer was my honorable mention, uh, but it was a toss up for me and it wasn't any of the monsters in this. Uh, It was a toss up between Ryan Lambert, who of course played Rudy and Ashley Bank, who played Phoebe. I think for the tropes that those characters are, and let's be honest, uh, there's so many tropes in films that, you know, (laughs) you could sit there and, you know, almost pull out the, the, you're this character deck of cards uh, for some of these films. But I think that, Rudy was, you know, the fact that he was a good, cool kid mm-hmm. made it work well. And I think that Ashley Bank played Phoebe very well. And and I know, like, you know, it's, it's easy to sit there, see, see the little kid and go, okay, this is going to be the annoying character. It wasn't. <laughs> Ashley Bank nailed it. Phoebe's a great yeah. character. People, thank you so much for this. Before we go, please let our listeners know where they can find the Movie Duel podcast. Uh, well, you can find it at all good um, good places that you find podcasts. Uh, we're pretty much everywhere that uh, that you'd be able to find. Um, and yeah, check us out. Um, we've got some exciting uh, bits coming up, including uh, uh, yourself, Jason. Uh, hopefully, coming and doing one of our bonus episodes. I am so looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, we can. Uh, we just released our, our latest episode on. Uh, um, what we called Humble Pie, which was films that we uh, thought that we would uh, would hate and ended up loving. And uh, and we've got some exciting uh, subjects to come up as well. Well, make sure you subscribe and follow to wherever you get your podcast, the Movie Duel Podcast. Pete, you know, the door is always open anytime you want to come on back. Just name the movie and we'll go down that road. 
Now, to you, our listeners, you guys know the drill. If there is a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned or is just so bad that there's no way in monster hell that we can find anything good to say about it, hit us up on social media at NotThatBadCast or go to our website at NotThatBadCast.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out all of our other shows, including There Can Only Be One, Keep Watch Pass, and our occasional grading on a curve episodes and check out our coming soon page so you can see what movies we're planning on coming down the pipe until next time pete thank you listeners you guys are awesome this is it's not that bad take care It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.